sins and was buried and rose again the third day, according to your word, God, to offer eternal life to all who would repent and believe. Help us today, O God, to, to bring you worship and spirit and in truth, to, to truly submit our hearts and to lift our hearts and our voices to you. God, that we might honor you and glorify you today, that everything that we would say and do through, through fellowship, through the preaching of your word, through the singing of these songs, God, that we would do so with hearts and attitudes that desire you uh, to be lifted up and to be glorified and to be praised above all else. Lord, help us to keep you at the forefront of our minds and our hearts. Lord, of everything that we do today, God, may it be focused upon you. And Lord, you are so good and so gracious and kind and faithful to us. Help us now to uh, give you the cares and concerns of our life, Lord, to uh, have things made right in our hearts, Lord, today. I pray that if we need conviction, we'll receive conviction. If we need encouragement, encourage us, Lord. God, I pray that whatever the need may be of every heart in this place today, God, that you would meet that need through the power of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we give this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you're able, please stand. As we sing, there is a Redeemer. I like singing about our Redeemer. 1 Corinthians 1.30 said, Christ has become our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen. There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Father, 
blessed Redeemer. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Him, I'm adding the word him here, just make sure we know who we're talking about. Being made a curse for us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> blessed Redeemer. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn, walk Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners, death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Blessed song beautiful hymn by the way first uh, corinthians 2 2 says i determine not to know anything save jesus christ and him crucified in christ alone <clears throat>
someone that they're we're glad you're here and then you can be seated <laughs> okay we have uh, some special music now by our dear brother Tony Hicks and I always look forward to him picking and a grinning so brother Tony you come on and sing for the glory of God you need a mic brother <clears throat> got a burden here somewhere. Y'all don't get all quiet on me now. Thank you. 
y'all but that really blessed me uh, it's amazing to me how God has given him a unique unique talent taking an old hymnal that we've sung millions of times and he made it special to God's honor and God's glory and we appreciate that brother Tony you being submissive to God and uh, letting him use your talent like that so thank you thank you Lord for Tony now, I'd appreciate if you'd join with me in a word of prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts for this sermon, upcoming sermon, and for the remainder of the service. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine. Yes, it was cold this morning. God, you created the cold, and we praise you for it. Praise you, Lord, for everything you do for us, for all your many blessings roof over our heads and clothes on our back and food on our tables and our families being blessed like they are with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for our pastor. We lift him up to you, Lord, and ask, Lord, to touch him and give him, give him strength and clarity of thought, clarity of speech, unction of the Holy Spirit, and uh, ask, Lord, that you just help him to convey your message Lord, your message from the Word of God that you've given him to us, Lord, and help us be attentive. And, uh, Lord, give us ears to hear and help us to be obedient, Lord, to your Word. Always, not just this morning, but always. We love you and thank you for loving us first, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And if you're able, please stand as we sing one more song here. Lord, you are... 
more precious than silver, more costly than gold. Psalm 16.2 says, Thou art my Lord. Apart from thee, I have no good thing. More precious than silver. Lord, you are more precious than silver. pastor a nice hand of applause God's man deserves honor amen well do we if we have any uh, children ages four to six you guys can be dismissed at children's church children ages four to six they can be dismissed children's church um, praise the Lord for those songs this morning from start to finish truly it was definitely and certainly of the Lord. I don't know if you guys noticed a particular theme or not, uh, but there is a certain theme about Christ redeeming sinful men. There is a theme about Christ not only dying upon a cross for our sins, but there is that beautiful theme that He did not stay dead, but that He rose victorious over hell, death, and the grave to conquer your sin and mine, to offer us hope, forgiveness, eternal life, and a blessed assurance. Even to talk about that special, about there truly is no sweeter name than Jesus. Today I invite you, as we're going to do just that, from Isaiah chapter number 6 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 6 this morning. You might be thinking, Pastor, we've been in Isaiah 6 the past two weeks and I haven't seen the name Jesus yet. Well, hold on. And you're probably even thinking, past the past two weeks we've been in Isaiah chapter 6, and my toes and shins are blistered, and I can't take another Isaiah chapter 6, Pastor. I want to tell you, dear congregation, me either. <laughs> but all of this truly points, and the reason why this passage is so powerful and is so necessary is not just because of the first four verses where we see the holiness of God, not just because of verse 5 where we get undone by the holiness of God. But we're going to see today how it is the very holiness of God that does not do us hurt or harm, but rather heals us and brings about the redemption and reconciliation of sinful man 
by His holiness to His holiness, and for our own good, not by any work of our own, but through a substitute. That substitute, what we're going to see Jesus today, is going to be found in verses 6 and 7 that's going to be coming, that Christ has come to take the punishment, to take the wrath that you and I deserved, so that for you and I today, through the blood of Jesus, we can say that our iniquity is taken away and our sin is purged. Let us read today verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. Twain he covered his face, and twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful how in your providence you have placed every song this morning, every word that has been spoken that has already pointed to what we're going to deal with now in this passage, and that is the sacrifice of your Son, your only begotten Son, not for the religious and not for the perfect, but for the ungodly. And God, that is us today as we stand before you. But Lord, help us today through your holiness as you have revealed yourself to us that we would understand that it is your holiness today that now not pushes us away, but draws us to be reconciled unto you. God, that we might have fellowship with one another and with you through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. Lord, guard my heart and my tongue and my mind today and open up every heart today, myself included, God, that we would receive exactly what you intend for us to receive from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to look here, first of all, to, by way of introduction, as we only, and if we only read verses 1 through 5, then we're left just totally undone. We have no hope. We have no future. Because as we talked about last week, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, this overwhelming uh, beauty of who He is, His separation, His purity, uh, the holiness of which even our finite brains cannot begin to fathom or, or understand, let alone compare to something or someone else. And Isaiah sees this. And he says, Woe is me! I'm undone! Literally the idea of those words is that he feels doomed and that he is doomed, that he stands before God sinful and, and condemned. And he even says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say, I, I've got a bunch of wicked people around me first. He says, I'm the wicked people. And then he says, I'm also surrounded by the people who have unclean lips. And we talked about how Isaiah later on in this book, in this preaching, discusses how the Lord shows him. He says, they're unclean in their hearts because they have lips that are unclean that flatter me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. Here today, if we were to end verse 5, 
I'm undone because I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then we'd still be shaking. But look at verses 6 and 7. This is going to be our key today. You see, God's holiness is not meant to hurt but to heal. And dwelling on God's holiness or beholding your God today leads us back into genuine fellowship with Him first and above all and then with others. As we've been looking at the context of this passage, we have seen the revelation of God which causes genuine worship in verses 1-4. through four. Verse 5 is the realization of man's sin and God's authority which causes genuine discipleship. And now today, we are going to see that reconciliation at the altar cleanses and causes genuine fellowship. And I'm not talking, by the way, of the altar call or waiting to the end of a service and coming up front. The altars we're going to see is nothing like the front of this building. Rather, it is the old rugged cross of Calvary upon which Jesus, our Lord, bled and died as a sacrifice for our sins. To take our iniquity away. To purge our sins. We're going to see that genuine fellowship with God and man must be purified in our life before we'll be perfected in heaven. I wish that I had a perfect relationship all the time with my Heavenly Father. But today, as Pastor Joe, I don't, and I wish I did. If we can be honest with ourselves, we would certainly probably all say the same, wouldn't we? Don't leave the preacher hanging, right? He's the worst sinner in here, right? Yeah. All right, you're like, mm-hmm. yes, you are, Pastor, that's right. The rest of us, we're, all, we're fine. And then let's, let's also understand this too. Ain't none of us got a perfect relationship with our spouses? Well, see, y'all, but me, right? No, not even the preacher. How about with each other? Do we have perfect relationships there? No. No, we don't. Because if we're real honest, half of us don't talk to the other half. Right? And we talk, and we've said, and we've prayed, and we've asked God, help us fulfill the, the mission of God's church, not just our local church, to, to know Christ and to make Him known. We've, we've asked God, we've put it down, we've even voted on it and raised our hand and everything, saying, God, help us to do this vision of, of all of these things that we see, these visual aids around us. And now we come here to this passage, and we see, as we're dealing with now today, genuine fellowship, it will only come when God purifies us, when we have a proper relationship with God, we're reconciled to Him, if we're reconciled to God, then we can be reconciled to other people. Then and only then. It must be vertical before it is horizontal. It must be between you and God long before it is between you and anybody else. Because at the end of the day, the greatest need in your life and my life is not to be reconciled to this world or the things of this world, but to be reconciled to the God of heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, who is holy, 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 and we stand before Him unclean and in need of being redeemed and to be reconciled, which means to be made right, to be restored into right fellowship and relationship. Even Isaiah needed it. What makes us think that we don't? But notice that Isaiah is having this take place in his life in order the worship, the discipleship, and the fellowship with God and before God in order so that we can get to famous verse 8. Here am I. Send me. 
You see, when we preach this passion and we hear it revivals and things all the time, we're trying to get us going and get us going. We want to get going. I want to get going and things are getting going. But at the end of the day, the first thing that is greater than us getting going is us getting before God and knowing Him and being right before Him. Because if I'm not right before God, how can I go outside of these walls and to go and have outreach and try to draw people in to fellowship with a God that I don't have right fellowship with? It can't be done. All we will ever do that way is draw men and women and boys and girls into a false hope, into a false salvation, into a false fellowship with God. And all it will truly be is that they will have fellowship with themselves and they will have God sprinkled in. And that's not real deal salvation, nor is it true reconciliation before God. Nor would it be fulfilling what we're saying that we want is to have real outreach. We find that we live in a world Imperfect people because we are imperfect people. With imperfect relationships, but yet we have a perfect God who desires by His holiness not to beat us so far down, nor in His holiness does He desire to beat us into submission. But He desires that we would see His holiness. We would see even as well His holy love and His holy grace and His holy wrath and all of that He is because He's revealed Himself in such a way so that we might know Him. So that then we might have genuine worship in our homes, in our hearts, in our churches. So then we might have real genuine discipleship, that we might truly submit to the King as Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up on the throne. But God in His holiness and God in His plan and God in His sovereignty does not desire just to shake you and quake you and make you so fearful of Him that you would not come to Him and have fellowship, but rather He shows you who He is so that you would come to Him. Let's not forget that the Bible tells us it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. And here, when we see holiness, may we not just see something that makes us quake and shake in our boots before God, but rather see His goodness, that He is good and I'm not. He is pure. I'm impure. He is just in all things. I am unjust. And that we see that that same God desires to know you and me that we would know Him and have sweet fellowship with God. To commune with Him. To pray to Him. To hear from Him. To be on good terms with Him. And it will not be through anything that Isaiah does, but rather, it will be through this substitute that will cleanse Him. And as we're going to see, this points to something far greater than the, the tools and the altar of a tabernacle or a temple. This points to the one who designed and created those things to point to the heavenlies and especially to point to the cross where Jesus would pay the price for your sins and mine. First of all, today, we need to look at the altar life. There's many folks, and every pastor that I know probably says that the, the people that come to the altar the most are the ones that only come to the altar. Right? They're the ones that are they're there. right? They're the, one, they're the repeat offenders. And everyone looks around and goes, Oh man, they're back up there at the altar again. I wonder what they did this week. In case you were wondering, that's what the rest of y'all heathens are thinking when they're up here. <laughs> all right? I'm just kidding, all right? Sort of. All right? Think about this. I don't care if you come up here every week, I don't care if you never step foot up here. There is a greater, greater altar, and it's right where your heart is, and it's right where the spot is where you get before God. And you meet with Him and He meets with you. Would we love for you to come up? Sure, we'd love to pray with you, help you. But God would love to help you right where you are. 
If we look throughout the Old Testament, the altars were placed not in just these specific designated areas, but literally as Abraham is going along on his journey to the promised land, stops, God provides, he builds an altar. He worships God. The altar and the well, the altar would disappear, the well would stay there, and people would remember that well. But people forget that that well is where Abraham worshipped God and he was justified not by building the altar nor by digging a well, but by faith. Fellowship with God is one of faith. You see this altar here that we find, first of all, in verse number 6. It says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Here we have found the holy fire before a holy God who, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is a, a consuming fire. God's holiness and character not only have undone Isaiah, but they're about to redo Isaiah. They're not just breaking, it's not just breaking Isaiah down, but it's to break him down to build him up. Do you believe that the Bible tells us that God is the potter and we are the clay? I do. It says in Old and New Testament. And you know what that potter does with that clay? He does what he must do to form and to fashion that clay into what he's going to use it for. Now before he uses Isaiah to, to call him and to answer and, and to go on this whole long preaching message in, in the rest of the book of Isaiah, he's got to take this lump of clay called Isaiah, right? specifically this man Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 1, by the way. He's got to take this man, this ordinary man, who's going to surrender to God, who God calls, and he's going to throw him down. He's going to mold him, shape him, and to make him a vessel that will proclaim the tidings of good news to these people who desperately need both judgment and reconciliation by and to their God. You and I today must understand that the altar is meant for just that. It's meant for altering. This place is not meant for Isaiah to go see God's holiness and to go, well, I'm undone and that's it. It's meant to change him, to prepare him for something greater, to prepare him for a greater use. And I would tell you the same thing today. We're not talking about that you need some sort of heavenly vision or anything like that today. What we do need, though, is to see God in His Word through the power of His Spirit and to know that when God is doing that painful molding and shaping and that undoing is he's not doing so to leave us undone but to build us back up to be used of him and for his glory the god who is a consuming fire not only consumes but consecrates his people in preparing them to be fit for his purposes isaiah uh, 33 uh, tells us this in verse 13 hear ye that are afar off what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? I Meaning, who can? Who can stand before the presence of this holy God? Look at verse 15, 15 though. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the, the gain of oppressions and that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. 
He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. What do we find there? We find that this same holy God who is a consuming fire is a God who is not so far off that you cannot come, but rather He says you can come. And you can have fellowship with Him. Not because uh, you are some sort of uh, higher power, higher being, or, or that you're just worth it, but rather because of the work that He's done in your life that then we can come to Him by faith. It is God who desires greatly and deeply to refine and rebuild His people. Do not think for a moment that God is just some man upstairs, which He's not, by the way. He's the God of the heavens. He's the one on the throne. He's not an old man with a grandfather clock up in heaven. Nor is He up there with a, with a mallet waiting to just whack you down and beat you down and to keep you down. He is the God who in His holiness and all of His glory and character and splendor and attributes desires to refine us, which is a painful process, but His will desires to rebuild us back up. This is what He has always done with His people. The fire of God is not only judgment for the lost, but it is refining fire for His faithful believers. And what we find in Isaiah 33 is that Ultimately, the fear of the Lord will become Isaiah's defense and direction in life, and so it must be with us. That to all those who fear the Lord, that is not to just keep us quaking and shaking and far from God, but rather to draw us near to Him. It is not His holiness that pushes us away. It's our unholiness that keeps us away. That, that has caused and uh, affected this separation between us and God. But it is His holiness that draws us near to Him, that purifies us and transforms us. Then we find in Isaiah 6, verse 6, this live coal here. <coughs> Notice here, he says, the seraphim flies over, takes the tongs, and gets a live coal off this burning altar here. And this is important. The word seraphim, if you remember from a few weeks ago, means burning ones or flaming ones. We see the continued resemblance in the pictures of, of fire, of judgment, holiness. This is all these things of which it represents. Furthermore, this burning one brings a burning coal. A live coal is the sort of idea in your mind of the red hot coal. I, when I, how many of you guys grill? Y'all grill out? Anybody? Okay, the other three of you? All right, y'all use pro... I, I don't use propane. I use charcoal. Not because I'm more manly, but just because I'm a man. Okay? <laughs> I, used, I like charcoal. I like the way charcoal tastes. That propane works, right? It's good, right? Grilled, grilled food is grilled food, right? I'm convinced most food should be grilled, but different discussion for a different day. But I love watching. I, I, don't, use, I don't use that, uh, what's that stuff called that, where you squirt it and then you light on fire? Lighter fluid, that's it. Thank you. Okay. I, I take a charcoal chimney, some old newspaper, which is normally the old food line ads. I put it in the bottom and I fill that chimney up with charcoal. And all I do is I light the newspaper. And about 20 minutes later, slowly but surely, this smoke and flame on the bottom begins to go up into that charcoal. And as the air comes through and gets that flame going, and lo and behold, after about 20 minutes, you look down and you've got these nice, white, hot, glowing coals with just a little bit of flame above and it's ready to go. 
And I love it. It produces such a heat, but as well, it's sort of mesmerizing to watch and to see these live coals. And there's many a times that as you pour it out, one might fall off, bounce off, touch you, and you go, ow, right? And that's all you say. <laughs> that's it, ow. But that live coal does something. It's those live, white, hot, burning coals, not the black ones that aren't on fire yet in the bag that do the cooking. I could just take the charcoal and stick it down there and wait and see if something happens. Ain't no meat going to get cooked on just black charcoal. It's got to be cooked and flamed and become white and ashy and hot with this heat to cook and to accomplish what it needs. This idea here is that this burning one brings a burning coal which acts as a substitute cleaning agent for the doomed and undone sinner. The same way that I need that white heart charcoal to, to cook my steak. We need the same live coal as Isaiah sees be placed upon our unclean lips surrounded by these unclean people to have our iniquity taken away, to have our sin purged. As one writer puts it, the live coal encapsulates the ideas of substitutionary atonement. You know what that means? That means you got saved not because you did it, but because someone took your place. Not because you died, but because Jesus died. A substitute. Right? Y'all have heard the song, When Mercy Walked In. Right? It's the same sort of idea. You and I are guilty, but the guiltless one, the one who could never be guilty, then takes our guilt and gives us his righteousness. That's substitutionary atonement in a nutshell, okay? Gives idea as well of propitiation. That's another Bible word that is the idea of satisfaction of the wrath of God. You know that song we just sang earlier in Christ Alone? There are some who wanted to take that line out because they thought it was too offensive. We need to understand that the wrath of God is against us, but instead of coming against you and I, it went against God's own Son in your place, and it satisfied His wrath so that you would not have to experience it. Christ has experienced it and has taken it for you. He drank that cup so that you would not have to. Furthermore, it gives us and encapsulates the idea of forgiveness. Something that many of us talk about in relation that well, you know, I wish I could be forgiven or I can't be forgiven or I've done too much to be forgiven. I want you to know, hear what we find with Isaiah and hear what you and I find at the cross of Calvary is that there is not a single soul that cannot be forgiven. There is not a single soul that cannot find forgiveness, not through their works or their merits, but through the work and merit of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find as well this live coal bringing about cleansing. Something that is dirty, impure, unholy, now cleansed, clean. And not just clean to then get dirty again, have to be re-cleaned and then re-cleaned and re-cleaned, but cleansed. Past, present, and future. As well as this special word we're using today, reconciliation. This is to have a right relationship. To be made right in the sight of. It is that we are reconciled not just to each other, but through Christ we are reconciled to God our Heavenly Father who we used to be His enemy. His holiness used to be against us, but now it draws us near to Himself so that we might have genuine fellowship. You see, the coal 
is not to hurt. The coal is meant to heal of impurities. The live coal represents the work and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but we can see the allusion to it in Leviticus 17, verse 11, that tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. See, that place of an altar was a place of atonement. A place where God met with man and atoned his sins. Made made forgiveness and granted reconciliation. Now, granted, they had to go every year for the Day of Atonement. Every year! Keep going back and going back and going back. I want you to know, Christ has died uh, and has done so once and for all, a complete and perfect sacrifice, the precious Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Christ has not had to come back and be killed again and again. He has done it once and for all. He continues and says, though, For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And it is the blood of Jesus that atones today. When Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. When His blood cleanses, it cleanses. Furthermore, we find here in this passage is not just this live coal, but the altar here. I believe it is of some significance. The altar and the blood, as we've just read, go hand in hand. The altar in Old Testament sacrifice you and I think of the little Sunday school pictures that we see of where it's a, a little lamb and we see a little trickle of blood and that's it. I want you to know it was nothing like that. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament of which they had to go through daily and even especially yearly for the Day of Atonement was one of gore and blood. It was one that was severe and it was meant to be severe to remind them how wicked their sinfulness is, but as well to remind them of how gracious God is that He would give them atonement. And that there would be this reminder of this substitute. Well, by the way, we don't just find that being given to man to give them those reminders and those lessons with Moses. We find it from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. The very moment that man sins, God in His holiness gives grace. God in His holiness, instead of extending all the wrath that Adam and Eve deserved, instead He extends grace and He Himself, in a beautiful picture of what His Son Jesus would do, slaughters an animal, the first death of an animal, to cover physically in coats of skins Adam and Eve who have sinned in unholiness and rebellion against His holiness. And from every single person that would ever be born after them. You and I from our clothes, whether you wear camel skins, lamb skins, deer skins, or J. Crew, or whatever, whatever brand Walmart might have, I don't know. Reminds us of our nakedness before a holy God and that we must be clothed by something else. But even more so, it points to the fact that there is a greater altar than the altar that they sacrificed lambs and bulls on. There is the altar, Golgotha, where Christ, the perfect Lamb, was sacrificed upon the altar of God to bring atonement for your sins and mine so that we might have fellowship with God. Altars are used for worship all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. By the way, altars are placed in front of our churches for the same thing. It's not just to come down here, sling snot and tears, and have everybody look at you and judge you. 
It's to come down here and to, in a symbolic way, meet with God. I've known plenty of people who have gotten saved in a pew. Praise God. I've known plenty of people who have gotten saved at the altar. I've known plenty of people who have gotten their hearts right or, or a sin addressed in a pew. Praise God. I've known plenty who have got it done at an altar, but in the Old Testament, the altar was of utmost importance. It was a place where worship of God, sacrifice took place, but as well as the place where fellowship with the presence of God took place. This must be, as one writes it, heaven's version of the altar of incense that was set before the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of God. Exodus chapter 30. For sake of time today, we won't look at that. We know that the earthly tabernacle God instructed Moses to build was made after the pattern of a heavenly reality. That's what Exodus 25 tells us. The throne is for God. That is where He rules and reigns. We see that in Isaiah 6. The altar is for us. That is where we find cleansing and purging from sin. We must never mistake the two. You and I were never meant for the throne. Same way, though, that God was never meant on an altar. Altars for us. So why did Christ have to be sacrificed? Because every offering that you and I could ever bring, no matter how pure of a lamb that you and I could ever bring, no matter how perfect of a, of a bull or a turtle dove we could bring before the altar of God, there would be never enough animal blood sacrifice to cleanse us forever from our sins. Instead, God Himself carries His means of death up to this hill, lays down upon it, and acts as both the sacrifice upon this altar for us to cleanse us. Leviticus as well tells us more about this in Leviticus chapter number 9 about this altar. Leviticus 9 verse 18 says, dealing with the offerings of Aaron, he, said, he slew also the bullock and the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings. You know what fellowship with God is? You know what reconciliation is? To have peace. To have peace when there was war. To have peace and fellowship. It says, to have sacrifice of peace offerings which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood which he sprinkled upon the altar round about. And the fat of the bullock and of the ram, the rump, and that which covereth the inwards and the kidneys and the caul above the liver. And they put the fat upon the breast and he burnt the fat upon the altar. And the breast and the right shoulder Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. And Moses lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering and of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering. In the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. But in the very next verse, the very next chapter, after all that God had shown them at this altar, and after all that God had done at this altar, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. Christ, our sacrifice, took the fire so that you and I might not have to. 
He took the wrath so that you and I might just have the peace with God. God accepts the sacrifice there in Leviticus, but then consumes and rejects the sacrifice of Nadab and Abihu after they offer improper sacrifice. You see, the cross of Calvary is the altar of God where sacrifice, salvation, and fellowship can be seen and offered to all who believe today. So that you would believe and not be consumed like Nadab and Abihu. So that you would not be so consumed by God who is a consuming fire, but rather that you would be consecrated unto Him and have sweet fellowship with that very same God who is mighty and just to judge, but as well as mighty and just to save through the blood of His Son. The second thing we find in verse number 7 is the altering life. It says, And He laid it upon My mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Nowhere do we find that He said, Isaiah, I need you to do ten jumping jacks, do the hokey pokey, and turn yourself around, and you'll be fine. No, instead He comes to Him as a substitute to do this cleansing. To prepare Isaiah then to be able to say with the angels, holy, holy, holy. And to be able to say with what used to be unclean lips, to be now purged lips and clean lips before God. And to be able to then to say, and only then, hear my sin me. Notice that first of all, it is instant altering. When you got saved, it was like that. Instant. Instant. There was no long process of working to get saved. It was you got saved now through the Spirit of God. We're becoming more and more formed and made in the image of Christ. The undone in the instant is made whole. The unclean is purified. The separated is brought near. The hopeless is given hope. The words touch and take and coordinate in the perfect tense, which shows a completed action. It is that the iniquity is taken away and the sin is purged simultaneously. It was not the iniquity was taken away and then a little while later in Isaiah's life the sin was purged. It was right there. That means, dear sinner today, your sins, past, present, and future, if you would cry out to Christ and ask Him to save you, He certainly will, but it as well means this, that your sins will be covered past, present, and future just like that. You will go from being unclean impure, unholy before God to now being clothed in the precious blood of Jesus, clothed in His righteousness. You are now clean before God, pure before God, and you are no longer who you used to be and you will be changed in an instant and forever and forever. But there is as well not just instant altering, but it is an immense altering. Notice these words. I want to help you out here a little bit. Verse number 7, it says, Thine iniquity is taken away. The word iniquity here is the word for guilt or punishment for guilt. So iniquity and sin, while they go hand in hand, iniquity is what the book of, uh, what book of Colossians then goes on and tells us is this handwriting of ordinance that was against us that has been now nailed to the cross. The iniquity is the guilt that you were guilty. It is the punishment. Can you imagine this? The guilty unholy who deserve death and hell can walk away free. Not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of what He has done and who He is as a holy and gracious God. And that our iniquity, the guilt, our guilt, and our punishment is gone. It's gone. He says taken away. You know what that word taken away means? Taken away. 
Really, it does give a deeper idea, though, of to be removed permanently. It's gone. It's not taken away to then to be brought back. Notice that nowhere in Scripture and nowhere in our Christian life does God remind us of our old sin. As a matter of fact, He says it's been cast away as far as the east is from the west. The Bible even says that He remembers our sins no more. What does that mean? Well, it means the idea that they are no longer held on our account, that our iniquity is taken away. There's no more condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. He then says, not only that, but wait, there's more. Thy sin is purged. The word sin here is the idea, Old and New Testament, of our rebellious imperfection before this thrice holy God here. That's what sin is. It is seeing the King, the Lord of hosts, as Isaiah sees Him, and not submitting. Disobedience. Rejection. It is making ourselves the King upon the throne of our own hearts. Sinfulness, idolatry, and immorality, all wrapped up in one uh, woeful disobedience to God. Furthermore, he says that sin, and by the way, it's every single sin, every wicked thought, everything that you've ever done or ever could do against this same God. He says it has now been purged, which is the word where we get, uh, where they get Yom Kippur from. Kippur is the idea. It is one of atonement or to be atoned for, to be, and here's the good one. Y'all ready? To be pardoned by substitute. The day of atonement was not that Moses went out and died for Israel or that Aaron went out and died for Israel. It's that a substitute died for Israel. And that the sins were literally, in, in, a, in a way, placed upon another and sent out from among the people to then go and to die for them so that we then, they'd have a whole year atoned for. We've had something far greater. Not only have we been atoned for and pardoned by substitute, but we've been reconciled by the same one, which is the idea of purging as well, to be made right, that which was wrong. Altering life takes place and it is instant it is immense, and it will change your life forever. And if you are saved today, you should be reminded in this passage, not just of God's holiness and your separation, but rather because of that, that you can now draw near to God because you have been reconciled by Him. That we have had our iniquity taken away, and our sins have been purged forever. Perhaps it was at an altar. Perhaps it was at a pew. Perhaps it was at your home. Perhaps wherever you got saved, that was the moment, that was the time that simultaneously, instantaneously, and immensely forever that God has saved you and reconciled you so that you might have real fellowship, genuine fellowship with Him. Now we get to the altered life. And we're done. Isaiah is purified and prepared to preach not because of who He is and what He's done, but because of the reconciling act of God on His behalf. Let's go to the cross. The cross is the altar for God's perfect Lamb. As Isaiah is clouded by the thick dark cloud in the vision that we find in verse number 4, the smoke that fills the house, God's overwhelming presence that is even as well acting as a protector for Isaiah. For if Isaiah were to fully look upon all of who God is, he would die. Because he's unholy. He's a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
So Calvary's hill. In such thick darkness that it says that darkness covered the face of the land for three hours. As Jesus is making atonement for our sin. As Jesus has taken away our iniquity. And there is still this sort of shield and separation to keep us from the immenseness of it, but yet it's about to be broken so that we might be reconciled and drawn to Him. And the moment that that takes place is when our Lord Jesus cries out, It is finished. To tell us that. Paid in full. The curtain in the temple would be, turned, would be torn in two from top to bottom to open up that all may come in. That all may know in a fellowship with God. That you and I don't have to go to a tabernacle or a temple to enter the Holy of Holies. All we must do is cry out, Abba, Father. There, in the presence of God, just like that. Jesus is nailed to the altar and the live coal of God's judgment and the clouded darkness of Golgotha is placed upon Jesus, our substitute, to purify the impure, the Holy One for the unholy. God, ungodly. Forgiveness and fellowship are now offered to you and I. Colossians 1 verse 20 tells us, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether it be things in earth or things in heaven. Dear child of God, you are not too far to be experiencing fellowship with God today. You are but a prayer away. You are but a step away, a word away from being in His presence and enjoying the fellowship that you were designed and saved to have, by the way. But dear sinner as well, my prayer is this, that you would not experience God in the holy fire of judgment, but find the holy fire that would refine you and reconcile you unto Himself so that you too might know and have this sweet fellowship. Christ has made peace. Christ has taken that which was unclean and cleansed it. Jesus, upon that cross, has offered and taken your iniquity, your guilt, your punishment away because He was punished so that you wouldn't be. And furthermore, He has done on that cross to make peace, reconciling us to God the Father by taking our sins and, and purging them. That we would be atoned for, that we would be reconciled and, and redeemed not by our work, but by His finished work on Calvary's hill. Today I ask you, has your iniquity been taken away? Do you know that? Do you know if your sins have been purged? If you are unsure today, you can come to the altar. You can sit where you are. I'd encourage you to come. Ask the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and to save you, and He will. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was you who He died for, dear sinner. It was you who He desires to reconcile to God through His shed blood upon that cross. You don't have to do a single thing except to say yes to this free gift of salvation. You may be born again. But to you, to you who know the Lord and have that fellowship with God, I ask you, how's that fellowship? 
right now? Is there anything in the way between you experiencing that same fellowship that you once had when you got saved? None of us felt as close to God right now than we did when we first got saved. I mean, we, we, would, we would have witnessed to a tree if we thought I'd get saved. We were telling everybody about Jesus. We were just thankful to be saved, thankful for the cross. Telephone poles looked like crosses. I mean, the whole thing. But year after year, our hearts have grown a little cold to the fact that we have relationship and fellowship with God through Christ. May today that be rekindled by God's holy fire to refine us, to help us, to heal us, not to hurt us. Let me ask you as well, what's your fellowship like with your fellow man? What's in the way? What have you chosen to not forgive? I'm not asking what, what somebody has a problem with you about. What do you got a problem with somebody else about? Where is your heart? Can you say that you have fellowship with those that you should have fellowship with? I want you to know for both parties today, it can be found at the altar. Maybe not here. Certainly you can. Certainly you can get it right, right there. But even more so, as we look to the cross, and we see that Jesus died to not only reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to each other. Not only so that we would have fellowship with God, but fellowship with each other. The precious blood of Jesus that has cleansed us, taken away our iniquity, and purged our sins. Let's all stand this morning. If you have a need, and you already know, I don't have to get it out of you. You can come and be altered today at the altar. Be altered right where you are, but nevertheless, you'll be altered the same way, and that is getting before the very presence of God and asking Him to change your heart and to enter into that fellowship of which you were designed and created, that same fellowship which Jesus died to give to you today. Not just with God, but with one another. If you have a need, now is the time. Father, we thank you for this day, grateful for this time that we can gather, we can worship you, and look to the finished work of Christ on that cross, Lord, for us. Help us to have true fellowship with you and with one another, God, that we would know what it means to fellowship together around the things of God. 
Lord, help us now as we go from this place, Lord, to leave here rejoicing, praising Your name. Lord, that we might leave here today in fellowship, not just with one another, but with You, God. That we might enjoy the free gift that You have given to us to know You, to walk with You, and to serve You. Lord, God, direct us to keep us safe. May we look to You in all things. In Christ's name, Amen. Sing our last song, 1 Corinthians 12.3. says, No man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He is the mighty King, Master. missed.